Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 178 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I'm your host this week. I am Jason Evans. You are probably listening to this podcast in the middle of your Christmas week or your Hanukkah week or whatever else it is you may be celebrating, but it's a time when things are a little bit quieter, a little bit calmer, and we're focused on presents and having a good time with our family and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, But before we got to any of that, The Duke basketball team had a basketball game, and they've got another basketball game after all of that. We will get to all the fun Duke news, but first, as I said, I'm Jason Evans, and I am joined, as always, by my partners in crime in Durham. Back in Durham, right, Sam? Yes, back in Durham. This is Sam Klein uh, in the home of the Blue Devils. I returned from Utah a couple days ago, and it's uh, it's nice to be home. It's rather quiet around here these days with, with all of my classmates gone. But that no, it's fine. I need I need that time to myself anyway. There you go. There you go. And also in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. What's going on in the nation's capital, Donald? Uh, Has there been any news this week? No, not not really. It's been very, very quiet (laughs) around around these parts. Uh, Yeah. No, it's been it's been wild. (laughs) Um, But it's cold. Uh, D.C. is is on one. uh, But it's almost the holiday. So I will be. Enjoying the weekend one last weekend before we leave this decade for 2020. There you go. Um, and, and by the way, deep tease. I'm glad that Donald said that. Uh, speaking of the decade, we're going to have a really fun thing for you guys coming up a little bit later in the podcast. We're going to look back on the decade of the 2010s and reflect on the very best of Duke basketball during this decade. But before we get to that, uh, Duke played a pretty darn good game this week against the Wofford Terriers. Um, the, the Blue Devils took on a team that just days before had beaten North Carolina. And Duke was without Trey Jones, without our point guard who, who drives the offense and the defense for us. If you thought that it would be a problem, Duke playing without Trey, you were wrong. Uh, the Blue Devils win this game 86-57. to 57. Um, The story of the first half was probably Vernon Carey and really good defense. And the story of the second half, my man Joey Buckets Baker was just raining threes down on Wofford. Uh, Donald, I will go to you first, talk a little bit about this game um, and, uh, you know, and this really impressive win for the Blue Devils over Wofford. So last week when we previewed this game, I mentioned that when we come out of these uh, these exam breaks, we usually have a little bit of rust and usually shows up in the shooting end. Well, I was wrong. It did not show up last night, and that thank God it didn't because uh, I, I think that was the catalyst. In the first half, like you said, Vernon Carey was everywhere inside the paint. He Anything that he wanted to you know, lay in or dunk home, he could do. It, it's very cool to see a guy who can just dominate inside the paint like that. And in the second half, Joy Buckets came on and was like, yep, it's my turn, and loaded up from three-point land. In the first half, I don't think we shot well from beyond the arc, but we didn't need to because Vernon Carey was that good. In the second half, because Joey Baker emerged, we were 7 for 13 from beyond the arc. And overall, we shot very well. We shot 54% from the floor, 40% from three, and almost 80% from the line. Those are are nice stats. You want to see all those stats in a game like this. And to come back from, uh, from a long break, it was almost two weeks since they had played. And to play a team like we had mentioned last week had just beaten UNC. They're on a high, and they were not going to be intimidated by Cameron and by the Blue Devils. They came out and played a very good game, especially, I think, in the second half. Wofford was still kind of creeping with them in the first half, and they had a couple times where they took the you know one-point lead or a two-point lead. 
And then when we took the lead in the second half, we never looked back. And that is that is what you want to see from a team that's coming off of a long layoff. And we're about to enter another long layoff. We'll get Trey Jones back most likely. It, it doesn't sound like it was a serious injury uh, for Trey Jones. They said a minor foot issue, issue. And after the game, Coach K mentioned that if it was an ACC game, that Trey would have been good to go and he would have played. So I think this was more precautionary more than anything. So it was good to see how these guys played in the absence of the the floor general and team captain. I wanted Donald to take that point because you could have started watching this game and thought Trey Jones is out. Oh no, this is going to be a mess. They're coming off the break. They're, they're going to be rusty. They're not going to be able to execute without him. And in particular, they're playing a Wofford team that really likes to move the ball around and shoot. Having more perimeter defenders like Trey Jones would be helpful in this game. And it ended up really not mattering all that much. As you pointed out, Duke was, Duke was sort of in control. Wofford was hanging around behind by 15 points, not by five points throughout, <laughs> throughout the end of the first half and into the second half. It really felt like Duke had Wofford at, at arm's length and looking at the shooting numbers, Wofford's uh, of, of Wofford starters that took the most shots, uh, a three for 10, a two for 12 and, and a three for eight from Storm Murphy. Uh, none of those guys were really able to get the shots that they wanted. The shots that they did shoot weren't going in. And and you would think that if nothing else, that is um, you know, that's something that that Trey Jones would be helpful for. And it turns out they didn't need him on um, on Vernon Carey. What I thought was so cool is that th- this Wofford team plays a lot like Virginia Tech who we saw very recently um, on the road in Blacksburg. Duke wasn't really able to use size against Virginia Tech. They sort of had to match them small for small. In this game, wasn't much of an issue for Vernon Carey. He was able to establish position and not get himself too lost on defense such that he would have had to come off the floor. He was able to stay on offense and and make a huge impact in the first half. And Matthew Hurt in the second half. I thought one of the interesting things that Coach K did in this game was switch up the starting lineup, not just because Trey Jones was out, but take Matthew Hurt out of the starting lineup and sort of see how that changes stuff. And it seems like it it motivated him even more. He was really aggressive in the second half. I loved uh, what we saw from him being able to use his size to dominate a smaller Wofford team. And that is something that I feel like they're going to be able to take into future games where, again, this Duke team in many ways is going to be bigger than a lot of their opponents. How do they use that size effectively? I thought that was my big takeaway from this win. You know, I think you mentioned the starting lineup and Hurt not being in the starting lineup. I think I, I heard that this was Duke's seventh different starting lineup in 11 seven, games. Seven different starting lineups. That's right. In 11 games. That's it's crazy. And, and yeah, it was necessitated because Trey – um, couldn't play, and Trey's going to be Trey is Trey and Vernon. I think are are the two guys who are going to be in the starting lineup every single game if they're healthy. Um, but uh, but still, it's just it's crazy to think about. We're looking at a Duke team that it, it feels like you know they play really really well together, and and they're certainly playing good basketball. By the way, um, uh, in the wake of of the victory over Wofford, Ken Pomeroy really liked that win. Duke is now the number one team in Ken Palm. Um, but, uh, but it's kind of amazing that 
that we were playing all these different starting laps. We're doing all these different combinations. It's it's totally unlike what you've seen from Coach K in the past. And it's exciting and fun as a Duke fan to have something new like that. I, I want to talk very briefly about the defense. It's been a long time, I feel like, since we saw a Duke team that was able to apply this kind of pressure on the perimeter and also help and recover so well in the paint. I mean, uh, we've got guys who are just so versatile and, and they communicate fabulously. And folks, do yourself a favor. Go back, uh, you know, watch your tape of this Wofford game. Take some possessions, especially in the first half, and just watch Jordan Goldwire play defense on some possessions. His ability to see like the geometry of a play and insert himself into places that make life difficult for the opposing offense is absolutely stunning. This is a guy who just, I mean, in classic parlance, he knows where to be on the floor. And, and I'm just so impressed with with his play. He, he did a nice job on offense as well. Do you, do you see his line as a point guard? He had, he had eight points, three of three shooting, five assists, and zero turnovers. And like I said, he was the head of our defense. I mean, you know, those aren't all ACC numbers, but boy, I'll take it from my backup point guard starting. That's a, that's a great, great game. And now I want to segue just very briefly, maybe it won't be that brief, <laughs> to Joey Baker. Because I, I, I want to talk about what this kid is doing, um, and I want to think about a little bit whether this is sustainable. Um, by the way, he has a really high release on his shot and gets his shot off very quickly. After the game, Coach K talked about the fact that he's the guy who's able to shoot the fastest of any of the guys in the Duke team um, from the perimeter. Uh, Joey Baker is currently hitting 53% of his threes on the season. And for you advanced metric folks, they, they track long two-pointers, like two-point shots outside of 15 feet. Outside of 15 feet, but inside the three-point line, Joey Baker's hitting 69% of his long two-pointers. And a lot of them have been contested. Nice. Yeah. yeah. But I, I wonder about something. I mean, is there any way that Coach K has spent – almost a season and a half now of watching Joey Baker in practice doing this and still thinks that Joey Baker is, I mean, he had Joey, Joey Baker was the 10th man at the start of the season, did not play in the Kansas game. Coach K has seen him practice every day this year. And yet it seems like, you know, there's been reluctance to move. He's been, you know, 10th, 9th, maybe 8th man. Um, even in just the past few games where he's been really exploding, you know, it's not like Coach K is like, that guy has to start. Uh, I, I, I wonder if maybe this is a guy who does stuff in games that he doesn't do in practice. Or, you know, I, I just don't understand some of the reluctance because what we're seeing when he's in games is otherworldly. I mean, so here's another great stat for you. Joey Baker's offensive rating, which is a measurement of the points you produce per 100 possessions are on the floor. His offensive rating is 141.7 right now. 141. Last year, Zion Williamson, who I think most of us will agree, one of the greatest players ever to put on a Duke uniform. Last year, Zion Williamson was a 133 on offense. Joey Baker right now is a significantly better offensive player than Zion Williamson. That's crazy. There's just no way he's raining threes like this in practice. There's no way he's hitting contested jumpers in practice like this. And Coach K has him as the eighth or ninth man in the rotation. I, I hope that he's one of these guys where when he's on the big stage, when he's in the game, the light comes on and, and he's just like dominant. But I, I feel like maybe we're in for some 
statistical correction <laughs> with Joey Baker. I maybe hope we not. maybe we need to be worried. Maybe we need to be worried about the sort of uh, regression to the mean that we saw from Jack White last year, and that perhaps that's a uh, perhaps that's something that's weighing on Coach K. That hey, Jack White looks great not only in games last year, but also uh, presumably in practice because he was getting minutes early and was allowed to shoot the ball and then come ACC play, it all just fell apart. I don't know if there's, you know, what the behind the scenes difference is between those two players, but there's got to be, there's got to be something to it that Coach K says, we can't have Baker out there for too long. There's also something to be said for if he's good in sort of that, that limited role and he can be that efficient, then perhaps it's better to keep him in a limited role where he only has to produce a little bit. If you give him 30 minutes a game, perhaps, you know, he's not able, he he doesn't have the stamina for it or, or other teams are able to better figure him out. I I think that's one of those little chess moves that, that coach K has to constantly manage, not just in game, but throughout the season. And honestly, I'll take a guy who is 10th man scoring 22 points every four or five games. Like, that means that the <laughs> scoring can come from anywhere, and and you gotta love that. And, and for, as a, as an opposing coach, you can't plan against that. And it feels more like perhaps like early career Andre Dawkins or or early career Grayson Allen, where yeah. we knew the we knew the offensive potential was there. Right, Andre Dawkins came in with this with this lights out reputation as a shooter, and then only played a very limited role on a team that won the national championship, but on which there was not much depth. Um, so we only got to see him in spurts, but he played a huge role for Duke, obviously in the, in that 2010 NCAA tournament, even as a freshman. So perhaps that's where we can expect Joey Baker to shine most for this team. Although maybe in future years, he gets, he gets more minutes and is able to establish more of a rhythm. And, and, and I think really quick, uh, and then Donald, I'll let you have last word on this. I actually think the, the answer may be not that Joey Baker doesn't do this in practice, but that Joey Baker struggles on defense a little bit. Um, and Coach K values D so, so, so much that it's sort of hard for him to get past some of Joey Baker's struggle. And we've seen Joey Baker struggle a little bit on defense in games. He's getting better. Um, but it may be that K can't get past that. And so even though he knows he's got this fire – you know, this absolute guy who can light it up on the bench. He's just a little reluctant about what Baker's going to do on the defensive end. Um, uh, that, I, I, to me, that's the best case scenario because I think maybe, you know, you can get Baker to the point where you get more and more confident in his defense. And if he's, if he's able to even come close to matching these kind of offensive numbers, he, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a huge, huge weapon for Duke. All right, Donald, maybe that. Well, I was going to say maybe maybe then the Andre Dawkins comparison is is pretty apt because that was yeah. one of the big things that was missing in his game when he came in, and it took him a lot longer to sort of develop that skill. Yeah, and I'll say this about Baker: um, all the reports are that this is a guy who works his butt off uh, in practice. He works on his shooting. He works on everything. He's been working a lot apparently with Chris Carrawell specifically on his defense, trying to get better at that. He knows he needs to improve. And uh, and and someone like that, uh, the, the potential is certainly there for them to get better at that other aspect of the game and then be be a player who, you know, is indispensable to you as opposed to being someone who's into the bench. All right, Donald, I promised you get last word on the Wofford game and Joey Baker. Yeah, I have uh, just really I want to go back to the defense to close out. And one thing that I think that was interesting about this game that we haven't seen yet this year is that we had great defense, but it wasn't in turnovers. It was just forcing them to take bad shots. 
Wofford only had nine turnovers. We only blocked six shots. Those are well below our, our average for the year. But where they did excel is that for the game, Wofford only shot 35% from the floor. Now, granted, they shot 41% from three, which is pretty good as a team. But that, I mean, 15 shots, or I'm sorry, 24 shots for the whole game. They really, you know, once they got inside the inside the paint, we owned them. And we were forcing them to take bad shots inside the arc. And we were taking that and going, especially in the second half. They were 11 for 33 from the floor the entire second half. So I do like this part of the defense where we suffocate them and force them to take bad shots. This is kind of that Virginia kind of defense. Virginia doesn't like turning the ball over that much. They just make you wind the clock down and take a stupid shot. We did that against Wofford. And when times when we can't take the ball away, if we're going to be able to suffocate them in another way on defense, that means that the defense is working well and within the confines of what it's supposed to be doing. And I'll tell you one other thing just really, really fast uh, that was really impressive about our defense on the Wofford perimeter. They only took 24 three-pointers in this game. This is a team that loves to shoot threes. In our preview, I mentioned the fact that Wofford was a team that shoots more than 50% of their shots from outside the three-point line. Um, they were well under 50% in this game. Uh, look, against UNC just the other day, they sh shot 43 pointers. They only took 24 against Duke. That wasn't because Wofford suddenly decided, hey, we're going to be a completely different game, a bit completely different team, and try a different offensive approach. It's because Duke cut off the thing that Wofford likes to do best. And that is a great way to have your defense destroy an opponent's offense. So, guys, uh, with that, with the Wofford game in our rearview mirror, we have another game coming up this week. Duke will be playing Brown, uh, our annual Ivy League game, and uh, it comes up next Saturday. Um, Donald, let me go to you first. What, what you got on, uh, on Brown that, that folks need to look out for? So the one thing that I'm looking at, we just talked about three-point shooting for Wofford. Uh, Brown doesn't have it. They, they shoot 31% from the floor uh, from, from, uh, as a team from three-point land. So, But they also take quite a bit of shots. They've already taken almost 240 three-pointers already this season. That's a lot of three-pointers. So I think there's going to be another situation where we're going to have a team that's going to try and shoot the three a lot and, and is not as successful as Wofford has been in the past. This team, when it comes to it, they, they rebound pretty well. They average 40 rebounds a game, but they really haven't played that many teams that would be uh, teams that people have read about. I mean, I think probably Navy and St. John's are the two teams that are the best on their schedule so far this year in a, in a schedule that includes Canisius, Quinnipiac, Sacred Heart, and the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Uh, NJIT, if you guys remember, had that long losing streak uh, last decade where I think it was something around 80 games before they uh, finally won a game. So, they haven't hey, played hey, anybody. Hey, Donald, Donald, really quick, I want to jump mm -hmm. in on that. Uh, yeah, the point you were going to make is kind of amazing because usually, you know, these smaller schools that Duke plays, most of them, they, you know, they play a schedule where, oh, they're playing other smaller schools, but then they also play some big guys. They play those games because you make mm -hmm. money off of those games and you want to test yourself against the better teams. For Brown to, they haven't played a single Power 5 school. You're exactly right. The best team they played is St. John's. St. John's is the only team they've played who's ranked in the top 200 in Ken Palm. I mean, think about that. It's crazy. And by the way, they're only five and five playing against bad teams. You mentioned some, they lost to Sacred Heart by 21. They lost to Navy by 20. They lost to Stony Brook by 16. Oh, no, not Stony Brook. And they lost to UMass, sorry, UMass Lowell by 12 points. I mean, 
not not a good look, Brown. Not a good look. All right, Donald, yes. continue. This is clearly one of those games where where we want to get uh, some some air under us before the ACC season starts. We're out. We're going to have another long layoff again. We're going to be off. Uh, I believe it's 12, uh, 11 days now for uh, Christmas holiday. People can go home. They're actually uh, they mentioned on the broadcast on Thursday night that these guys are going home. And they're not back on campus until the 26th to prepare for this game. So really, they're getting a few days off to rest and relax and kind of be and with the family. And the game's on the 28th. I mean, and the game's on the 28th, days. so they're going to you know, come back, and they're going to come back ready. They need to come back ready to go because that is when really the season starts. And it starts with this game, getting everything back in motion. We presumably will have Trey Jones back, and then we will go to ACC season from there. But really, what I want to see from this game, then I'll kick it to Sam, is I want to see these guys again. There's going to be a rust period. I want to see them guys come into it and and take a team that they know they should beat and blow them out of the water early, so that they can work on the things that they need to work on uh, before ACC season st- uh, starts uh, the week after that. Uh, Sam, what do you got? So the most important thing for me is that the two of you thought that Duke would have two 100 point games this season, and I thought Duke would have none in our stats prediction game. They've had one so far, which means right now we're all tied up. And if we're playing by Price is Right rules, then I have won. This game is a real threat. Oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this, this game. We are not playing by Price is Right rules. This game, this game is a real threat to my performance in this category. Duke, look, look, I, I, I don't like to jinx it. We already did that once this season with Stephen F. Austin and. And it it got so bad that Coach K had to make the players sign the floor again. You guys saw that during yeah, the yeah. during the Wofford game. Yeah, he only busts that out when he's concerned about about the home performance. He doesn't do it very often. But that being said, as Donald pointed out, Brown hasn't really played anybody of consequence this year, and and to that end, they've only gone five and five. Provided that Duke isn't so rusty, it should be a fairly easy game for the Blue Devils to dispatch the Bears and. Hopefully they do it in such a way that more of the walk-ons get minutes and we don't have to see them score 100 points so that I can uh, preserve my standing in the stats game. That's I'm, I'm betting the under. I guess I'm betting the under in this game. But I, 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 I want to I see the, the players be getting, getting those tune-ups. I, I don't necessarily want to see Trey Jones play 38 minutes against Brown. I want to see him play 22 minutes. I want to see Vernon Carey play 25 and let, let Coach K empty the bench. Let Joey Baker get a lot of minutes, get a lot of reps, get a lot of shots, all those guys, so that as ACC season comes around, which it is right after this, uh, they feel like they're in rhythm, they're ready to go, and that they aren't going to um, they aren't going to drop silly early ACC games because they're still rusty. Really, really quick. I, I think you, you kind of hinted at one thing. I think the key to this game is going to be who wins the rebounding battle because they miss a ton of shots, both from three and from inside the paint. They're only 40% from the floor and they they shoot 30% as a team, but they also average 40 rebounds a game that's up there with us. So it, it's going to be interesting yep, to see the, how that works. By uh, the way, it, it, go ahead. The, the, the thing that Brown is best at. I mean, this is a team, you, you mentioned it. They're a bad outside shooting ter- team. They turn the ball over a lot. The one thing that Brown does really well is rebound. They're the eighth best offensive rebounding team in the country. Eighth best. Uh, you know, and and they've got a little bit of size. they got a couple guys who are 6'9", you know, who play regularly for them. So, 
So the one thing that Brown does well is rebound. Um, the problem for them is Duke is also a really, really good rebounding team. And I, I just feel like, yeah, I feel like Vernon Carey and the guys are going to be a little better than the guys that Brown has rebounded. Hey, as 2019 draws to a close, we here at the DBR Podcast want to thank our sponsors throughout this entire year, our eternal sponsors to, so, to some extent. Bird Campbell, the Bird Campbell Law Firm with offices in Florida and Texas. Reach out to them, Duke fans, if you have any business legal needs at B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Bird Campbell means business. So I may be in charge, but I'm about to pass the baton. I'm going to hand it over to Donald for a little bit because there's a little game Donald wanted to play with us regarding the decade of the 2010s. Donald, this is your game. Take it away, my friend. Thank you, Jason. So a couple of weeks ago, the three of us were kicking around a couple of things that we wanted to do. And I thought this was a fun segment that we could do. So with 2020 approaching, we are obviously saying goodbye to the decade of the 2010s. It was very good to Duke. If you ask me, two national championships during the decade, a few more teams that got close. So we wanted to do a few best of the decade categories. Of course, on the tread for this on the, on the DBR forums, we want you to chime in with your response to these categories. We may debate about it a little bit, but obviously when – there's three of them that we're going to do, and I want to hear from you guys when this is done. When you listen to this, you can say that we were wrong. You can say we were right. And you can also give your opinion as to what uh, the best of these categories are for you. So, gentlemen, we are going to start with the all-2010s seven-man rotation. How this is working, I want you to give me your starting five and your two subs that you will have to round out your rotation. Any player who played in the 2010s is eligible. So that includes the 29 or 2009-10 Duke team all the way through this current team, okay? So, Jason, you're up first. Who is your starting five and your two subs? So, uh, so first of all, um, I, I think there's one absolute no-brainer, and I don't know if it's recency bias or not, but to me, Zion Williamson is an absolute no-brainer. I don't need to have a discussion about him. Zion is going to be on all three of our teams, and again, maybe it's just that he played last year, but feel like <laughs> I feel like we're talking about one of the all-time greats. So, Zion Do you want me to admit do you want me to admit that I forgot about Zion Williamson? I didn't, but do you want me to for the for the sake of discussion? <laughs> no, no. Uh so uh so Zion is on my team. So uh, the first thing I did after saying, "Okay, who's the no cuz I looked and I didn't think there was another no-brainer to me. I I by the way disqualified Kyrie Irving. He simply did not play enough to merit consideration, in my opinion. And we're going with their college careers. That's, Donald, that was your instruction. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 Kyrie, as great as he's been in the NBA, um, I, I just can't put him on my team because his college career wasn't there. So I, I Zion was the only no-brainer to me. Uh, after that, I, I started looking, you know, at a starting lap and I'd start with a point guard. And I really struggled. There were no, in my opinion, otherworldly point guards this decade. Um, you know, the 90s had Bobby Hurley. The 2000s had, had Jay Will. There, there was no one to me that stood out above the crowd. Now, part of that was there's so many really, really good point guards. But I, I went with Tyus Stones, Tyus Jones as my starting point guard um, on this team. I, I also really considered Nolan Smith and John Shire. And, and in the end, 
um, I, I picked John Shire as my starting shooting guard <laughs> um, uh, from the decade. And Nolan Smith is one of the guys on my bench. So I sort of have three point guards, um, but I went with Tyus as the starter. Like I said, John Shire is the um, uh, is the shooting guard, almost 40% on his threes, capable uh, of uh, playing great D and a really good passer, also played some point guard. I, I really loved Shire's game, um, and it's a pity that the NBA never got to see him because of the eye injury that he had. Um, and uh, so, so then for my small forward, I thought Brandon Ingram, and in fact, I thought Brandon Ingram was close to a, um, uh, a no-brainer to me, um, it, it really close. I mean, you know, folks may forget that 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 the year he was at Duke, we were the Duke, that Duke team wasn't a really great team. Brandon Ingram was truly incredible. Um, his length on defense, his creativity on offense. So I've got him as my um, small forward, and then my power forward. Um, essentially, you know, Zion and one other big man is what I needed. Um, and I had a long debate between Marvin Bagley and Jalil Okafor. And in the end, um, they're both really, really great offensive players uh, who are not great defensive players. I think Bagley was a little bit better on defense. And, and I just love uh, – I think Bagley and Zion would work better together than Zion would work with Ja. So my starters are uh, Tyus, John Shire, Brandon Ingram, uh, Zion Williamson, and Marvin Bagley. And then my bench is Nolan Smith. And my other guy off the bench is Luke Kennard. People may forget about Luke Kennard's sophomore season. Dude hit 44% of his threes. Um, he was really, really great. Um, you know, I also thought about R.J. Barrett. There are a couple other guys who were who were on the list. Uh, Grayson Allen. Look, if I could only take Grayson Allen's sophomore year, um, 21 and a half points per game, almost 42% from three as a sophomore for Grayson Allen. But, Donald, you said the rules. I got to take his whole career. Um, and so so I, I went with Luke Kennard as, as the last guy on my team. I think that's probably going to be a controversial one. That is – there's a couple on there that I – was surprised to hear you say um not necessarily because they were bad or anything because honestly when i looked at this list of players that were eligible that i was like yeah these would easily be anyone starting five the list was like 60 players long so uh, there's gonna be some <laughs> some surprise out there say so, yeah, what do you got yeah i don't have a team that's all that similar to jason's so here you go i i took jason's idea about kyrie irving and not really having a lot of time to see him and saying Look, I saw what he did to Michigan State. I saw what he did to Kansas State. I saw what he did in his limited minutes in the tournament. And I think that Kyrie Irving was the best point guard that we saw in this decade, even in that limited in that limited set. So I'll take Kyrie Irving as my as my starting point guard. I think he's gonna. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I just said, you know, I just. I think he's gonna. I think he's, I think he's <laughs> I gonna. No. I think he's gonna cross Tyus Jones up a bunch. I think that we are. Tyus Jones did a really great job of um, of managing that. 2015 team but was not the defensive player I think that that his brother is and and that there's some um maybe there might be some revisionist history about about the 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 total value he brought although his offensive value was insane uh yeah yeah the the folks out in in podcast land can't see the look on my face I'm like whoa dude really (laughs) Tyus was a great defender man (laughs) not not it I don't think that his total package was the way that was as as big as as Kyrie, as the, what Kyrie Irving brought to the team, even in his limited minutes. That's from from okay. my perspective. Yeah, yeah. You're at shooting guard. <laughs> at shooting guard, I actually thought Nolan Smith was was our best shooting guard. We've had we've had a ton of really great shooting guards this uh, this decade. Nolan Smith 
Grayson Allen, Jason, you mentioned uh, Luke Kennard, um, not even to mention guys like Gary Trent. Um, I don't know where Justice Winslow falls on the shooting guard versus small forward versus power forward. He sort of did everything on the on the perimeter and and was incredible at times. But Nolan Smith, I feel like, especially by the end of his career, the part that played in this in this particular decade, 2010 and 2011, there was nobody more poised. And when Kyrie Irving went down, Nolan was so great in his senior season at, at leading the team. Um, you know, they they didn't exactly get to play together to the best of their abilities. And I think that's one of those big regrets is that we didn't get to see the 2011 team with both players healthy for an extended period of time. I think you, you put them together in a backcourt and, and they're going to be crazy effective. Nolan Smith being such a great defender, especially at the end of his career, I think would, would really help Irving at the small forward position. I liked Brandon Ingram as well, um, but I like Jason Tatum a little bit more. I think that he, uh, I think he, he brought it at both ends of the floor and that we, I think we may even underrate the how good Jason Tatum was at Duke. Obviously, looking at his pro career, he's been one of the most effective um, pros out of out of this crop of of the one and done guys. But I love I love Jason Dude, Tatum's want, game. Look at Ingram and Tatum's stats, and it's and they are not comparable. There's I I, I yeah I think that it's hard to compare and, because I think that Brandon Ingram had more opportunities on a on a limited team. Uh, so, you can make that argument. I, I I I looked at that. I, the, the, that was one of my decisions, and I looked at their stats, and I was like, "Oh man, this is not even a close call." But you, again, you're tied to right. your opinion. <laughs> power four at power forward. I've got Zion Williamson as well, um, and then I went through the exact same uh, exercise between Okafor and Marvin Bagley as far as who I want to start next to Zion, and I decided actually that I like Bagley more off the bench because I think that he brings some something a little bit different. So I have Okafor starting at center. And I have Bagley and Grayson Allen as my two bench guys, um, being being sort of the 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 fire off the bench. Grayson Allen bringing it. I think at both ends of the court, he's got he's got the defense um, and he's got the offensive ability. Especially if we're if I'm thinking about sophomore Grayson Allen, but even even you know maybe maybe at his worst, um, still I think a great player at both ends. And then Marvin Bagley being just such an incredible scorer. If this team um, if this team needs needs buckets from big guys and uh for whatever reason okafor isn't isn't giving them to him marvin bagley sort of changes the game for them so much i also love there are some other players that i i would have loved to put on a bigger team as as donald said um one of those guys senior quinn cook uh on the 2015 team was such a great leader and i think that the challenge for my team is that Kyrie and Nolan are are both on the smaller side as is great grace nouns a little bit bigger than them but if those guys are your um, are you know are playing a lot of minutes one two and if Allen is in at the three, uh, you've got a you've got a small team, which is why I like having Tatum in there. Quinn Cook is also a small player, and I was like, oh, I'm I'm already I'm already size limited on this team, and I don't know um, what I'm going to do about that. Seth Curry is another player that that I really loved in this decade, um, and then a couple guys also in that in that era that that maybe we overlook. Um, because they didn't have quite the flash of some of the one and done players, but Ryan Kelly, uh, an amazing shooter, and and became a great defender at the end of his career. And then center Mason Plumley, um, somebody who was able to uh, who was able to do a lot of things around the basket. The thing is, Mason Plumley just wasn't Jolly Okafor with the ball uh, in the post. So uh, lots of lots of great players from this decade, and this was a, a fun exercise to go through. Yeah, you, some of those names that you listed at the end are literally a lot of the players that I debated in my mind as to whether they would be on my list. Uh, so 
Sam, you'll be happy to know that my list is pretty similar to yours. There's just a couple of exceptions. I'll get to those in just a second. At point guard, again, I was going back and forth. Uh, I went with Kyrie Irving. He his performance against Michigan State, like I said, you grade his whole his whole career in college. Yes, his career was only eight games, but those eight games I thought were eight of the you know his performance, especially against Michigan State, in my mind was one of the greatest performances in Duke history until a guy by Zion Waves that showed up and did it like 27 times. So I'm going with <laughs> at point guard. At, at shooting guard, I also went with Nolan Smith. One thing about Nolan Smith I thought that inked him out over a couple of other players is not just his scoring when Kyrie Ir- when uh, Irving went out and also just his scoring throughout his career – but he was a very good distributor of the basketball while he was scoring too. He, you know, remember that year he basically led the team in points. He also was one of the national leaders in assists that year and was a national player of the year candidate as a result. That distributing, he's able to shoot the three when he needs to. He's able to drive and dunk on somebody if you need to. That's Nolan Smith, and that's why he's in my starting five. Small forward, I went back and forth between a lot of guys, but really I had to go with my gut instinct. And my gut instinct is that I went with Kyle Singler. And I think just one of those names where there's a lot of other guys that you can easily throw in this list and debate. But for me, Kyle Singler had it all. He had rebounding. He had he had the the, the Kyle Singler two point, but it was so effective because anytime he shot the ball within 15 to 20 feet, he was going to make it. And also, he could shoot the three ball when necessary. He's one of the best players in Duke history that does not have their name and number up in the rafters, in my opinion. And, and he played in this decade. Kind of crime. It's a crime that this is the first time we're mentioning his name, uh, you know, in this little exercise. I mean, Singler was a great, great, a great player, an absolutely remarkable player. And so I have him in my starting five at small forward, power forward, Zion Williamson. No need to explain that. And at center, again, I had the same debate that you guys did between Marvin Bagley III and Jello Okafor. I went with Big Jaw. Big Jaw's performance, uh, his freshman year, his only year in college, is one of the most dominant ones that we had this decade of any player in college basketball. And so I, I went with him uh, over M- Marvin Bagley, who also had a dominant performance uh, a couple years later. And really, honestly, Marvin Bagley would be in the starting five if Zion Williamson didn't come to college or didn't come to Duke University. So he's my sixth man. My seventh man. I have scoring, I have rebounding, I have size, I have ball handling, I have passing, dunking, defense, steals, threes. Well, I don't really have threes, but I, the one guy that I brought off the bench is Seth Curry for that reason. His threes, especially clutched down the stretch, were something that any team desperately needed. And when he came to Duke from Liberty and immediately flashed that Curry, you know, trademark three, I, he was one of my favorite players in really, you know, the three-point shooting that he has and the ability to score points in bunches was something that every Duke team desperately needs. And and so I have him as my seventh man. Of course, that leaves off a lot of guys that are my favorite. Quinn Cook, you mentioned Justice Winslow. Emil Jefferson was outstanding. I was just going to um, mention Emil. The first I, I really considered Emil. Yeah, like, I mean, I really I'm just going to go through Emil. Yeah. I'm going to go through some of these guys that we have not I mentioned. I can't believe that we're none of us like, picked Justice. We no haven't also talked to Winslow. Did anyone mention Wendell Carter? Did anyone mention Wendell Carter? No, Wait, let me go through a single one. Let me go through this list of just players that I consider, and you guys are going to start laughing because there's going to be people who are like, how the hell do we forget to talk about these guys? Justice Wait, Winslow. Don't, don't, 
I, wait, go wait, ahead. Really quick before you go through that. Am I correct, guys? There are Nobody three... picked R.J. Barrett either. Yeah. There are three con- there are three consensus guys. There are three guys all three of us picked. We all three picked Zion. We all three picked Marvin Bagley. And we all three picked Nolan Smith. Is that correct? And Okafor, right? Did and Okafor. Pick Okafor? I, I did not take Okafor. Oh, you did not did take him at all. Okay. 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 Remember, because I went with Luke Kennard off my bench. And right, said, that's right. I probably okay. need another big man. Yeah. You know, if you gave me Maybe. eight. <laughs> so, wow. So the consensus best players were, were Zion Williamson, Nolan Smith, and Marvin Bagley. I, I don't think that's outrageous at all. Yeah. No. So here's some of the guys that I've considered, uh, in addition to some of these guys that we've mentioned. Justice Winslow, Emil Jefferson, Marshall Plumley, Grayson Allen, Tyus Jones, Seth Curry, Ryan Kelly, Mason Plumley, Miles Plumley, John Shire, Nolan Smith, Lance Thomas, Brian Zubik, Austin Rivers, Quinn Cook, Rodney Hood, Jabari Parker, Luke Kennard, Brandon Ingram, Jason Tatum, Harry Giles, Wendell Carter, Marvin Bagley, RJ Barrett, and Cam Reddish. And that's not counting this current team where – Honestly, through five games, I wouldn't say that uh, that big that, that that the tank would be considered for an all-decade team, but he's having a pretty good year. Uh, so that should tell you alone how difficult this exercise was. So I thank you guys for indulging me for for that. I thought that was pretty fun, and of course, all you guys out there, if you guys have a better starting five and two subs than we do, post them on the forum when we post this tread about this podcast how 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 did rj barrett and justice winslow not make any of our teams RJ Barrett Jab- Parker, Parker didn't make any of them either oh, but you guys remember jabari parker yes no, he was Parker's, dominant he was ridiculous his defense was terrible though but rj we, barrett, don't, we don't care we don't wait, care RJ barrett, <laughs> rj barrett set a record for freshman scoring at duke i mean you can there is not a crazy argument about rj barrett having one of the top three freshman seasons in duke history I, how, how, none it's of us absurd. pick RJ Barrett. Oh my God. It, I, you know what? I'm going to just be real. If Zion Williamson played the whole year, he'd be, he'd have every record that exists. All right. I'm changing that, my, that team. my I'm going, rationale. I'm going, I'm going for the all big wing team. Um, so <laughs> I think we're going to have, hell of a team. we'll have, we'll have Kyle Singler at the point, obviously. Um, no, no, no. Brandon, Brandon, Ingram, Ingram, Brandon Ingram's at the point. Brandon Ingram at the point and Kyle Singler yeah. at the two. Yeah. Um, Jason Tatum, Tatum at the Winslow. three. Winslow and then Jabari Parker at center. Wait, 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 I thought you were going to take RJ Barrett. The whole point of this was taking RJ oh. Barrett. <laughs> no, RJ Barrett's coming <laughs> off the bench for me. Don't you know that? 30 points off the bench. 30 points game off the bench. Let's go. Hey, Don, we'll put Don I'll, Nelson. I'll, I'll send I'll send I'll send Justice Winslow to the bench for for uh for that team. Don Nelson that would be insane. loves that team. Like that's a team every one of those guys is like between 6'6 six, six and 6'8, six, right? Mm-hmm. Don Nelson, that is and that team switches everything, although Jabari Parker can't switch shit. Um <laughs> but that is a great team. That's yeah. Great. In fact, I'm kind of pissed I didn't pick that team now. Because Zion could be on that team too. Oh my yeah, god. absolutely. Oh my god. That's an incredible team. I think what this exercise proves is that the 2010s was absolutely incredible we had a lot of great players and really we could talk about this all day but we need to move on next up the next category i want to do there's more (laughs) there's two more there's two more i want to do the next moment uh, next one i want to do is best moment of the decade obviously there are a lot of candidates for this category but i have a sneaking suspicion that two of us are going to have the same thing so sam i'm gonna let you kick this off all right there are as you said there are a couple that stand out there are two national championships. There are some pretty incredible wins. Um, there's Austin Rivers' shot against North Carolina. Um, I, I mean, I, there, there are a lot of ways you you can't go wrong here. Um, I think I'm taking, this is for a sort of 
personal reason because because I was still in school at this time. Um, but Duke's victory over North Carolina in 2011 when we came back um, from I think we were 14 down at half 2010. Uh, oh, that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. In the in the 10-11 game, mm-hmm. um, Nolan Smith had a had a breakaway layup. Um, that's sort of the the big highlight from the game, and I think that's my favorite moment of the decade. If I wasn't a student during that game, um, man, I, I probably would have picked one of the national championships. Although I remember most vividly the the Austin Rivers shot uh, against UNC. The I think it was just the following season. That was um, 2012. So so I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the 2011 home game against North Carolina. Um, another consideration. I don't know if either of you is gonna mention it. The 2010 home game against North Carolina. I thought that's what you were um, going for. No, 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 no. That one's that one's fun, but it doesn't have that same. I don't think it has that 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 same staying power for me that 2011 does. So, there, Jason, what do you got? It's not best game. It's not best game. It's best moment. Um, and, and uh, technical question: Can my best moment be Grayson Allen's minute? Grayson Allen's minute in the 2015 national championship game with 12 you minutes left. For that. That's scored, a great one. He scored That's a great eight one. points in a row. People mm-hmm. forget. I mean, because because there's the iconic steal he has on the sideline where he gets fouled that Coach K said was the you know the the one shining moment. Um, but people forget he also scored eight points in a row. Duke's down like we were uh I want to say we were down like maybe 10. We were we were down. It looked like we were in trouble. We were about to get blown out. And suddenly Grayson rains down two threes. Oh, sorry. He, he, and Jolly Okafor, Jolly Okafor is, is, is in foul trouble. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. He's supposed to be our he's supposed to be our counter to Frank Kaminsky in that game. And he yeah. he has to sit most of the game and, and Jefferson has to play most uh, to match up against Kaminsky. Yeah, but but the moment is the Grayson Allen's minute there. Um absolutely changes the complexion of the game. And there's absolutely no question we don't win that game without Grayson just going off for that minute with 12 minutes left in the national championship game in 2015. That was my pick as the best moment. That's a good one as well. Um, wow. I really thought one of you guys would have this with me. Guys, come on. I, look, with all apologies. So one of my favorite moments, one of my favorite moments, Sam was right next to me, was Zion doing the 360 against Clemson. But the best one has to be Austin Rivers three to beat UNC. Come like I said, UNC, I said it's in contention. It was in contention. I said it's in contention. Beating UNC at the Dean Dome on a buzzer beater after coming back from down ten points with two minutes left. There was nothing better than Sub Zero snatch UNC's hearts after that amazing comeback. And we were like, clearly not as good as Carolina. That we year. shouldn't have they won that game. <laughs> and he said, I don't care. It's easily the best moment of the rivalry to me. And it will always went out for me as best moment of the decade. So that was, I, I was surprised. I thought we were going to have a couple of agreements there, but three different ones. Again, that shows you how good this decade was. The final decade category is best game. You can say which game that was and why you thought it was the best overall game of the decade for Duke. Jason, what do you have in that regard? Maybe it may be that I'm a victim of recency bias, but I went with the Duke-Kentucky game last year. Absolute utter destruction of an opponent. Admittedly, it's not an, an ACC opponent. It's not a national championship game. It's it's not Carolina. But um, Kentucky's a team we love to hate, uh, and we just – I mean, we stole their soul. We we destroyed them. And more importantly, the game is the coming out party for the greatest Duke player of the decade, one of the greatest players of all time. Uh, so much fun. That was a game where my my jaw was literally agape at times, watching this Duke team just absolutely manhandle what many people thought was the number two team in the country. Um, 
and uh, uh, Zion's bounce. Remember Zion's bounce pass? Oh yeah, um, after uh, he, he after he, he took blocks, someone's life with that block. Yeah. yeah, he blocks the shot, takes a couple dribbles, and throws like an insane bounce pass. Um, God, it was just that game. In terms of a single game, and do you know? I, Best game uh, sometimes is probably a game that's a close game and an exciting game. This is not a close game at all. Duke owned Kentucky the entire time. I thought it was the best game to watch. And for it to be the first game of the year, you don't really know what you're going to get from these guys. You've heard so much. There's so much hype. How is it possible to exceed the hype? They figured out a way. It was like the second game of college basketball because it was the second of only because it was the second game of the Champions Classic that year. It was it was absolutely mesmerizing. Sam, what do you have? All right. I have a couple moments from early in the decade that or a couple games from early in the decade that really stand out to me because I think that we like looking back, especially since the one and done era started, I think we actually underrate the effect of the 2010 team on sort of the course of Duke basketball history and how much prior to the 2010 championship season, lots of questions about how much longer can Coach K do this? Does he have the stuff to recruit anymore? Does he know how to build a team in the modern era? And I think that it's important to pick a best game from that 2010 season for me. So um, the national championship game against Butler, which was probably the most nerve-wracking basketball game I've ever watched, uh, the 61-59 to 59 win, I think that I had said to friends before the game, if one of these teams... It like the first team to 60 is the one that wins. And that was exactly what happened and about as about as close as it could have been. Um, but for that season, the one that that I think is is the best game, uh, the most fun was that Carolina game. So in my best moment, I was picking um, I was picking the comeback against UNC in 2011 for the best game. I'm going with uh, 82 to 50 in in 2010. Duke just dominating not a good Carolina team, a team that didn't even make the tournament, but on their way to an ACC championship and ultimately a national championship, that romp at the end of the season really was the the springboard that Duke had where they said, no one's going to stop us the rest of the way. We know exactly who we are. We are not the most athletic team on the floor, um, but we can get tons of rebounds. We can make tons of shots. We are going to lock you down on defense. All of our starters can play big minutes and and no one can can sort of stop that that efficiency train. And I think that that was most exemplified by the by the end of the season home game against Carolina. That that's a good one. Um, it, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the national championship game. I know you did this uh, any time that that game was on in the Duke bookstore. Everyone in the store would stop to make sure that Gordon Hayward's shot did not go in. And thankfully, I, my, years later, my, it hasn't. <laughs> my favorite my favorite uh, Duke bookstore game uh, from for. Folks who haven't been to the Duke bookstore, they they often have they have these TVs in the bookstore, and they'll often just be playing the old the old games, the ones that they like sell on DVDs. I don't know if they still sell DVDs, but they would they would do this when I was in college. So like in the 2008, 2009, 2010 range, before the Butler game was on the um, before the Butler game was on the TVs, my favorite game to go in there and watch was the um, was the Final Four comeback against Maryland from 2001. Just mm-hmm. personally. That's my that's my favorite stand in the bookstore for Oh yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> so, with all due respect to 8250, I'm going to go with another set of numbers and that is 69 to 63, which took place on January 31st, 2015. Duke beats number 2 Virginia on the road in Charlottesville. The win wasn't really the the game about it. It was about the air surrounding that particular game. As you guys, guys remember this Jones. 
is I'm get to that, but that's not even why I'm going at it. We we talked about this because uh, it brings us back to our very first special podcast. And uh, on January 28th, we lose at Notre Dame, and then on January 29th, Duke announced that Rashid Suleiman had been kicked off the team. Then we had to go to unbeaten Virginia in Charlottesville and try and beat the Wahoos. With all of that surrounding the team, we saw the emergence of Tyus Stones with this play. They had an amazing performance, easily one of the best college basketball games of the decade, in it, especially that year. There were other games that were probably my favorite or among my favorite, but with everything that was happening at that moment, people were wondering if we would even make it through the ACC season. All the stuff around Rasheed Suleiman being kicked off the team and just the air around that, to go to Charlottesville and leave them with a win was easily my favorite one of my favorite moments uh just that just the celebration of ty stones hitting that three and just celebrating triumphantly on the court it was a win that rebooted the season and helped spark the team to winning another national championship so 69 63 that's what i'm going with for best game uh but for those of you out there obviously you guys have your best moments you guys have your best games you guys have your all 2010 rotation that you would go with Again, when we post this uh, in the forums, please comment. Uh, let us know what you thought about our picks and also give us yours as well, because I think this is a discussion we can really continue well into 2020. Yeah. Anyone have another hour? We could keep going. I know, right? <laughs> can we do the can we do the 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 Maryland game in 2010? I want to do the Maryland game in 2010. Oh, my. I thought <laughs> you were, that, when you talked about 2010, I thought that was the game you were going to pick. That was like That's the, another the good Zubek one coming out. That's the Zubek coming out party. Also, yeah. second second best moment of the decade was Gerald Henderson dunking the life out of the out of the uh, out of the uh, Xfinity Center, or was that two thousand nine? No, that's in two thousand nine. Oh, like, oh Gerald man, oh, he's yeah. not under consideration. We, we, we Donald, Donald, you and I have talked about that game on this show multiple times. It's the only time that's I've been a, there, and it's the only time I'll go over there. It's a, <laughs> it's a it's a good one to leave on. Yep. I think that's my last. I think that was my last time going to a game there. I've only I'm, been to, I'm I've sure. only been there once. I've only been in the Dean Dome once. The Dean Dome game was my senior year. It was when Duhon had the uh, running uh, layup. Oh, the layup! The length of the floor. The length of never the floor. need to go yeah. back. Yeah, two, two, two places that I never need to go back to. Saw the greatest Perfect. games I've seen there. I love it. All right, gentlemen. So before we get to wrap things up. Um, there is another issue I want to talk about, and I know this podcast is getting long. I'm sorry, folks, but there's so much going on, even though there's nothing going on in college basketball. <laughs> um, the thing that's going on that I want to talk about is uh, James Wiseman um, and his decision to leave the University of Memphis. Uh, uh, if you haven't been following this, James Wiseman was pretty much the consensus number one recruit in the land. Penny Hardaway got him to come to Memphis. Um, the NCAA uh, suspended him for 12 games. Um, after, because it was determined that Penny Hardaway had had helped his family with some moving expenses, $11,000 worth of moving expenses. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. This is a very significant event for James Wiseman to decide to leave Memphis and not play anymore and prepare for the NBA draft. Wiseman's going to be a top three pick. That's, that's a given. Um, but th this is significant because we've never seen a player who was playing with a team decide in the middle of the season, I'm done and I'm going to prepare the draft. I'm not playing any more college basketball because I want to prepare for the draft. Um, and, and 
I think in that regard, this is really an unusual case. And uh, I wonder if we will see other players perhaps decide to do the same thing. People have already talked about, look, people talked about last year with Zion Williamson. Um, when Zion got hurt, people were like, why is he playing college basketball? Why is he risking his NBA draft stock? There's nothing more for him to gain in the NBA draft after the, you know, the pros have seen him play a little bit. People are already talking about it with Cole Anthony at UNC that, you know, he got hurt and why, why is Cole Anthony going to bother to come back and play for UNC? So uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on this, but before I get to them, Sam, let, let me, let me go to you and to Donald and, and, and let's have just not too long a conversation. Is this a really significant event in college basketball? I don't think it is because I see every one of these situations as being their own, um, being their, being their own setup that, that, that every version of this is going to be different depending on who the player is, where they come from, where they're going to school. And, and that's the, the part that I want to focus on here. Penny Hardaway has obviously built an incredible recruiting machine at Memphis. He's already, he's recruited tons of five-star guys to uh, a program that has been really great in the past. Obviously with John Calipari, they were able to, to reel in tons of five-star guys, but is not inherently a program that, that is supposed to be getting that many top recruits. What it appears Penny Hardaway has not done in building that machine is make them all committed to being at the university of Memphis, being part of whatever he calls the, the tiger family. It's, it, it's team Penny. It's, it's Penny's AAU team rebuilt in, in college form. And I don't know if players who pick to play for Mike Krzyzewski or to play for John Calipari, who all sort of put in that, in that same sort of upper tier um, as far as recruiting and developing players. I don't think players that pick, Duke and Kentucky are the same players that are picking Memphis. And, and I don't know if, if, if we can say this is a one-to-one thing. Duke, wait, wait, guys uh, have come hang, to Duke. Hang on a second. Boogie Ellis picked Duke and then changed his mind and went to Memphis. I'm, I'm <laughs> saying that I, I think that there is, I'm saying that I think there is an inherent difference between where you ultimately end up going. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that there is something to be said for the coaches who have sustained programs this way, as opposed to the coaches who have come up to do this. Maybe that changes for Penny Hardaway. Maybe he's able to get more of these guys to stick around at least for one season, but perhaps even for more um, to build more of a sustaining thing, as opposed to just building a, a throughway. I don't, I don't see a Duke player having this same thought process that James Wiseman had, because I see the benefits of, of choosing Duke as being, around the program and playing with the other players and, and, and being a part of all that. Um, and that, and that Memphis does not appear to be invested in creating that environment for its players. So damn, that's a throwdown, Sam. Yeah. Okay. I, look, Donald, I, yeah. look at, I, I'm, I'm looking at their track records and this is, and this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Donald, what you got? I agree with Sam that it's not anything you in my mind, it's not unique. We see this a lot in college football. Uh, we see guys where they just halfway through the season, like, you know what? I, I, I picked up a, you know, an ankle injury. I'm just going to prepare for the NFL draft. We see guys not even play in their bowl games. They don't even finish the season because they want to do it. And really, if he wanted to withdraw this at the time, but here's the thing. We should just go ahead and say it. He's not coming back to Memphis because he doesn't want to pay repay $11,000. That was one of the stipulations for him being reinstated was he sat out the games and repaid the the, the loan. But if you need a loan of $11,000, that means you don't have $11,000 to begin with, and you probably don't have it to pay back. He will he will have it in, what, 
seven months. But oh, actually, actually, he can have it right now because because he's no longer playing college basketball. Agents can give yeah. him whatever he wants. He can start lining up right. endorsements and stuff like that. The money is flowing today. But he ain't cutting no check to the NCAA. It's just he's not cutting it to no to no NCAA charity. He's not doing that. And I, I think that was really the main catalyst about him not coming back. But really, in the in the sense of things, right? Go ahead, we, Donald. We, Donald, say it. Say the line that you said on our on our chat. He ain't cutting no. He ain't, he ain't repaying no eleven thousand dollars. He's not paying no fucking eleven thousand dollars. If I if I'm like, hey, I can either go pro and make millions of dollars, or stay in college and pay eleven thousand dollars to do it. No, no, no. I'm leaving. No, no, no. I'm gone. And that's what he did. And and really, when it comes down to it, we see guys. You know, sit out all the time. We see guys. You know, Michael Porter Jr. had a, had a ankle injury that sat him out the whole year. He came back and played one game in the NCAA tournament. They lost. And he went to the league. You know, Ben Simmons, like, kind of, you know, lollygagged his way through college and ended up going to the league. I mean, these, these sort of things happen. We see it again. Like we said, we see it in college football all the time. But really, what we're talking about here is players are doing what's best for them. Because now at this point, a lot of players are starting to realize that the NCAA ain't doing right by them. So they got to do right for themselves. And James Wiseman has, he's like, I, there's no point in me coming back. There's nothing I have to gain from doing that. They've seen enough of my college tape. Honestly, we have to be worried that Cole Anthony is going to do the same for UNC. So those sort of things are going to be – it's not necessarily unique, but I think in the sense of James Wiseman because of the air around him, all the stuff about how he got to this position, that makes it a little unique. But the whole like leaving for going to the NBA, go ahead and do your thing, man. It's it's not – it's what it is. So, so one of the things you just said about oh, the NBA has seen you know all they need to see from him. There's nothing more he can he he gets out of playing college. Uh, I I will note um, a, a, a note of disagreement about that. Um, if uh, so, so backtrack a little bit. This this Memphis team appears to be even without James Wiseman, they're ranked number eleven in the country. They, they've only lost one game. Um, they've beaten some pretty good teams. They beat Tennessee. I want to, was it Oregon? They, they, they got some good wins under their belt. This appears to be a, uh, a Sweet 16 kind of team without James Wiseman. Add him back into the mix, and this team is in the conversation for the Final Four. In a year where there are no great teams, this could have been a Final Four team and a, national, and a sure national championship contender with James Wiseman. To me, that's what's stunning about this. This is a guy who had a chance – if he comes back and if he plays the way people say he could play, he could have been one of those transcendent players. I mean, look, Zion Williamson, um, the reason everyone's all hype and crazy about Zion Williamson is because of how well he played throughout that season for Duke and all the amazing moments we had. After, after five or seven games, Zion Williamson would have been the number one pick in the NBA draft. He could have stopped playing then. We never would have seen him have that block shot against DeAndre Hunter. We never would have seen him have the 360 dunk against Clemson. Those plays that were shown again and again and again on television have turned him into turned him into a hundred million dollar endorsement guy before he's played a single second of NBA basketball. When James Wiseman takes the floor as a as a NBA player, the vast majority of of fans will have never seen him play, and that's I, I, he's missing that. He's missing a chance to be a part of a potentially great team. And he's missing a chance to maybe, you know, build an image before he goes to the NBA. 
Go, Donald. I, Real I quick to push back on that. I think in Zion's case, I think that's an unfair comparison because Zion was so well known before he got to college, before he even played in high school. He was he was he had an Instagram follower of millions and everyone followed his every dunk. So him being at Duke, him if Zion, in my opinion, I'm glad he went to Duke, obviously, but he he ends up anywhere and he's still a global megastar that he is right now. And he again, he hasn't played a second in the NBA yet. But when it comes to James Wiseman, I think when it comes to him, the fact that people still know who he is and he's played three games, that that is to him, he's like that's that's all that needs to be done. Like, I think in this wait day, a second, and age, wait a hold on. The people know who he is is diehard college basketball fans, um, and, and NBA, plays, and NBA but, scouts. Yeah, right, right. Oh, that's a given. That's a given. Yeah. Look, they're, they're they're guys that no one's heard of that NBA scouts know everything about. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, um. If James Wiseman had played in March for Memphis, making a Final Four, again, which is not an outrageous thing at all, mm-hmm. uh, the number of people who know his name is probably tripled, at least. I, 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 I mean, I, I think – I'm not saying he made a bad decision. I understand why he made the decision, and, uh, and, and he's going to make his money, and this is a way of guaranteeing he's going to make his money. All those things are fine. I'm saying potentially he left a lot of money on the table. He left a lot of endorsement, endorsement and money. Reputation. It's not necessarily right. because right, right, right. right now right. he's going to be top three. And if he had stayed, he's going to be top three. So his draft status may not really go. But the line that you're looking at me to say, this is what this is really what I what he's saying. You you are high if you think I'm repaying the NCAA. That's what I wanted. Dollars. Like that's what I wanted. That's what it comes down to. It's not about the basketball. It's not about the endorsement money. It's about the fact that I ain't got eleven thousand dollars, and you high if you think I'm gonna give it what I don't have to you. Hey, so really quick, the last thing I want to say on this as as we wrap it up, and I apologize. This is going to be all about Memphis and Penny Hardaway. There, there's something really interesting here about Penny Hardaway and his relationship with his players and the way he runs his teams. It is pretty clear based on the timing of this announcement by by James Wiseman that someone got to him that there was someone um, around Memphis, around the team, who who is an agent or a runner or something like that, who convinced him not to play anymore. The other thing is, uh, and, and that, by the way, that kind of speaks to, you know, Penny's job keeping people in, you know, away from his players who shouldn't be around his players. The other thing is, and this is very interesting, Gary Parrish of CBS lives in Memphis. He knows that city's basketball better than anyone on the planet, I think. He says that the Wiseman family had grown really disenchanted with Penny Hardaway. They felt like Penny told them that the loan that he'd given them was going to be fine and not a problem, and then they got suspended. He felt like Penny in Memphis told um, James that that after the NCAA declared him ineligible, that they could play him anyway and it wouldn't be a big deal. Remember, he played the first three games, even though the NCAA said he wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to. Penny said well, they got a court fine. injunction. They got a court injunction that said, yeah, you go ahead and play. And then the court base is like, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with us. And they yeah. and, and they are like, OK, maybe at this point, maybe you should sit down. But honestly, Jason, it's almost good that this happened in Memphis, because if he goes anywhere else, this becomes a major recruiting violation. And, and, and then that team, through no fault of their own, has to suffer the consequences. Yeah, yeah. So. The Wiseman family apparently felt like every step of the way, Penny Hardaway in Memphis said things would go one way and things went the other way. I mean, look, supposedly they went when when the Wiseman family dropped the lawsuit, 
um, that allowed the NCAA to slap the the, the penalty on him. Um, they thought that the NCAA was only going to give him like, you know, three or six games. And suddenly NCAA said, nope, 12 games, $11,000 fine. And, and the family was like, what is going, you know, so I think this, we should watch out and see how this maybe impacts Penny Hardaway and his building of a, of a Memphis program that, as we've seen in the past, can be a very, very potent program. And um, I, I just think it's, it's, a, it's a really cool, it's a really interesting story. Okay, guys, time to wrap things up. We're not going to do parting shots. This is way too long. James Wiseman was the parting shot. Player of the decade was the parting shot. Moment of the decade was the parting shot. Time for player of the week. Sam, who was your player of the week for the Duke Blue Devils against Wofford? Well, it depends. Do you think the first half of the game was more important or the second half of the game was more important? I'm going to tell you that the first half was more important because that's the only half that was truly competitive. And therefore, Vernon Carey is my player of the week. Donald. Vernon Carey has gotten player of the week several times and he will get continue to get player of the week. I have no problem with his performance against Wofford, but Joey Buckus was the player of the week. Come on, man. Joey this is not a this is this is not a democracy. We're we're handing out player of the week. <laughs> so uh, uh, I talked a lot about Joey Baker, but the other guy I talked a lot about is my player of the week. My player of the week is the guy who filled in for the point guard. Uh, Jay Gold led the defensive effort. He had eight points. He did not miss a shot from the field. He had five assists and zero turnovers. And that's another name. I uh, you know this may be the one week it's, we're not going to get a lot of chances to say Jay Gold, Jordan Goldwire. Player of the week. I think it's a. I think it's a fine choice. Good job, Jason. Thank you. Considering I probably blew the 2010 team, you know, I figured <laughs> I'd get that one right. <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for us here on episode 178 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Donald and Sam, hope you have a happy holidays. Bird Campbell, our wonderful sponsors, hope you guys have a happy holidays as well. To everybody out there in Duke Land, we got another game coming up in a week, and then we turn the calendar. We go into the 2020s. Let's hope it is just as good a decade as the past one has been for the Blue Devils. I am Jason Evans for Donald Wine in D.C. for Sam Klein in Durham. Duke Band, take us home. By the way, my, my parting shots were going to be uh, – I wanted to talk about John ja Morant's dunk on Kevin Love. Yes. You see that, Donald? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Saw that. His, well, his attempted dunk. It would have been – it would have ended – Right. It would have right. would have ended civilization. Do you see Kevin Love's – do you see Kevin Love's yeah, tweet about it? Kevin Love's yeah. reaction. Kevin Love said uh, – he said after it happened, he was like, if I had gone in, I'd been like, okay, I'm done with this basketball thing. Yeah. I'm retired. <laughs> Um, I was going to talk about that right time episode that I sent you, the story about the Alabama game sent by the anonymous Duke player and how I found out who it was in like two minutes because I was like, I remember that play and looked it up and like basically looked it up on YouTube was like, yep, I knew exactly who this guy was. We also we also didn't talk about the one that that crazy Arizona State game. Oh, the box. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) With the the sub. But wait, so my other parting shot. Did you guys see the taco fall thing? Yes. No. Last okay, night. so so last night um, they were playing uh, the Pistons. 
Yeah, Taco Fall uh, was on the. They had a couple guys injured, so Taco Fall was on the active roster, and uh, the Celtics, thanks to Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, were beating the crap out of the Pistons. <laughs> and in the third quarter, the fans start chanting Taco, Taco. They wanted Taco Fall, and um, and he's never played in a home game. This is his home debut for the Boston Celtics. And with about four minutes left in the game, the fans are chanting, and Brad Stevens starts egging on the fans. He's like, yeah, get louder, get louder. And they're like, Taco, Taco. <laughs> and then he he just points to Taco on the bench. It was so great. He just like, kind of waves. He's like, go, goes, go. Goes, You're on. And, and Taco <laughs> it was like a Rudy, it was like a Rudy moment. Like, like it was. Like, it but was. he was like, he's like, okay, come on, go. <laughs> Taco was like, yeah, and, and the thing is, wait, have you seen the bench from like behind, especially from like behind oh. the uh Score yeah, table. The roof is, yeah. They're, they're so the, the angle of the video is from like right behind the scorer's table, like angled at the bench. So you're like, who's he motioning for? You hear the taco, and then you see Taco get up. You're like, oh my God, like Brad Stevens is, is a decently tall man. And Taco Falls, like, thanks, coach. Like, <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. By you. the way, by the way, he had five points, two rebounds, and a block in four minutes. Mm-hmm. Taco, I don't know why he, why didn't he play more? He should be playing more. Because he can't run up and down the court for five seconds. It's a it's a real limiting factor. Yeah, <laughs> is what it is. Oh, I well. can't either. That's why I don't. All play. right, guys. All right, all right. See you guys. We should have left all this in. We should have left all this in. <laughs> oh well. I may leave it in yeah. after. I may leave it in.